It is wonderful to be with you this evening and have the privilege of preaching and teaching the word and just as much to be with you and to worship with you this evening. If you would, would you take your Bibles and turn with me to that passage that Chris read just a few moments ago. And if it's all to all the same to you and if it's all the same to you, Chris, I would like to read the passage again, um, not because Chris didn't do a fantastic job. But it, it helps me to stick to the text when it's, when it's fresh. So this is really you indulging me rather than any other thing. So if you would, could we stand in honor of the reading of the word of God? Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 to 39. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. And a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Would you pray with me? Our Father, this is your word. And the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word, it stands forever. And our Father, we would ask that tonight that your word would meet with your spirit in our hearts and mold us, make us and change us into the men and women and children that you've called us to be. Would you open our ears and our eyes Would you enlighten our minds? Would you soften our hearts? And would you bend our wills to yours, we ask? Teach us, we pray. In the name of and for the sake of Christ. Amen. Please be seated. Well, the theme of this great book, of which you have already been taught, I'm sure, over and over again, is the superiority of Jesus Christ. And we won't go all the way back to the beginning, but suffice it to say, as you have learned that Christ is superior, he's he's presented as superior in all things and to all things, to all those types and shadows and people and priests that that have come before. And not only is he the person superior, but so is the work that he has accomplished. The new covenant is superior to the old His work in that covenant is superior as well 
And, and we need to remember, I think, as we come to a text particularly like this one, actually a difficult text in the scripture, that as we come to a difficult text like this, that some of the Hebrews to whom the author was writing, they were in danger of doing something particular. And what is that? They were in danger of being tempted to go back to Judaism, to fall back into and to operate under the old covenant. They were, be, they were being tempted to go back to the old manner of sacrifices. Again, to return to the old covenant rather than living in the new. And the author is laying before them then the supremacy, the superiority of Christ, showing that indeed that would be a really bad idea. Not to put it flippantly, but to leave Christ and to go backwards to those shadows in those times is a dangerous thing. Indeed, because not only is Christ superior in that he is better, Christ is superior in that he is the only way. Christ is superior in that all these former things actually point to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only way of salvation. So it's in this context then that we come to this text tonight. And the author gives the Hebrews a fairly stern warning, doesn't he? I mean, we read this text and there's a fairly stern warning here. It's a it's a not only a difficult passage with some difficult things to understand, but it's a it's a difficult passage to hear and to receive. It's not too different than the warning that he's already given in Hebrews chapter six. And I'm sure it's probably been what a couple now, a couple months ago, a couple weeks ago, whatever that was that you studied chapter six. Another very strong warning with very strong language. But just as in chapter 6, so too, here is it, it's done not as a negative, not as a negative, but done to drive people to Christ. And that's my hope tonight, is that as we hear this passage and we hear it um, expounded, that it drives us to the Lord Jesus Christ as indeed our only hope and the only way of salvation. It's an encouragement, really. It's an encouragement by pointing out the alternative, pointing out. The alternative, if you don't trust in Christ, here's the end of that. It would not be good. Go to Christ, trust in Christ, rest in him. So we have a warning about the judgment of God followed then by his hope for the better things for them. The better things that for those who belong to the Lord. And so I want us to look at the text in several different ways, actually four different ways. The only sacrifice, the severe consequences, the great reward, and then this encouragement to persevere. So first let's look at the only sacrifice. And it may seem strange that, that I've named this first division the only sacrifice because um, the very first verse in our passage says, right, for if we go on sinning, if we go on sinning, Let me get back to it. Deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. So here we're being told there there is no sacrifice for sin if we do this. So why not name it no sacrifice for sin? Well, that's the point here. And this is why the context is so important. The purpose of the author is to remind us, remind them and remind us in a very direct way. That there is only one sacrifice for sin. And if one turns their back on that one sacrifice, then there's nothing left. Then there is no hope for them. Then there would be no hope for us. That's the point here. 
The verse is not talking about believers who are struggling with sin. Nor is it even talking about believers maybe struggling with, with besetting sin in their life. Um, and, and we understand that, right? Some of us struggle with those things. We just we seem like we are always repenting of and coming back to the foot of the cross. Well, if that's where you're coming, good for you. Because that's where we receive the power to overcome sin in our life. But this is not what this text is speaking of. Yes, that sin displeases the Lord. But that's not the people that are in view here. What's in view here are those who have, as we read, received the knowledge. Received the knowledge of the truth. They've heard the gospel. They've even participated in some of the blessings. The outward blessings of it. Much like we're told back in Hebrews chapter 6. And yet still, they turn their back on the Lord Jesus. They, they reject Christ. What this is talking about, it's talking about apostasy. It's talking about, that's not a word that we use very often anymore, is it? But it's talking about leaving the faith. Turning your back on the Lord Jesus. And the, and the warning is this then, outside of Christ, look, there, there is no sacrifice. There's no hope outside of Him. Don't turn back. Don't turn away from him to try to find another way to deal with sin because there is no other way to deal with sin. God has provided one way and that way is Jesus Christ. So this is the warning slash encouragement to them. Don't turn from Christ. He's the only way. I always think of the time it's been many years ago now. I went to help a gentleman in his garden I've told this story a couple of times and I was young, fairly young in the faith even. Not necessarily young in the faith, but certainly young in my studies. Um, young as a minister of the gospel. And I went to help this gentleman in his garden and I was working with him and we began to talk about the atonement. What God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And he had asked me, he said, do you really believe that God sent his son and his son died on the cross for sinners like us. And that it took, it took the sacrifice of his son to forgive us of our sin. And I said, yes, that's my only hope. It's our only hope. And he looked at me and he said, if that's the kind of God he is, then when I get to heaven, I'll say to him, I don't want your forgiveness. But what the author of Hebrews is here saying is that. You won't be there. You won't be there. Because you won't have his forgiveness. Because forgiveness is only found in Christ Jesus. That's the message. That's what, shouldn't that be a missions motive for us? Shouldn't that be an evangelism motive for us? That if Jesus Christ is the only way. And that sinners apart from God are left to an eternity without him. And apart from him. And Jesus is the only way. Then we've got a message, don't we? As a church. We've got a message that the world needs to hear. We've got a message that saves. Because it's the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for this dear poor man. Not only will he not be in heaven. But what awaits him is a fury of fire. And that's what the author says here. This is the alternative. Severe judgment. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. This, this is what is faced if one rejects Christ. If one turns their back on the Lord Jesus, this is what waits. We, we've, 
I, I am sure that as you, as you have walked through this book of Hebrews, that you've talked about contrast. The contrast, the beautiful, wonderful contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Here we have a contrast that's not between the covenants, but we've got a contrast between a future with Christ and a future apart from Christ. It seems like that would be an easy one to answer, wouldn't it? But such is the hardness of men's heart apart from the Lord. And I can't help but to think of the present application and implications of this as well. Can't help but to think of Paul when he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 about those who have died. And Paul says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Peter says that believers are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the, uh, from the dead. Those who know Christ, we've got a hope that the world doesn't have. We've got a hope that the world doesn't have. And those that turn their back on Christ, they have no hope. They've given up the only hope that they had. But in fact, a fearful expectation of judgment. That's the warning, right? That's the warning. Don't turn away from Christ. There are severe consequences for doing so. And then verse 28 says, anyone who set aside the um, law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or Three witnesses. Again, looking backward to the old covenant here, there were severe consequences for one turning from the covenant of God. Chris read that from our Old Testament reading a few moments ago, turning aside to idols. In fact, if one were to do such a thing, did you catch what the what the consequences were? And there were witnesses to it. The punishment was what? Death by stoning. There's death by stoning. And that's severe. And we bristle at that today, don't we? Man, what a punishment for turning your back on the Lord and chasing after idols. But the point here is, the reality is that he who turns from Christ after, after having been made, after he has been made manifest to them, is under even a more severe punishment. And we might think, more severe than stoning to death? How can anything be more severe and eternity apart from God? This is something that we need to be reminded of, isn't it? That this world is not all there is. I mean, if we've seen anything take place over the last several months, we have begun to understand what's really ultimate to people, right? Whether it's this, that, or the other. But what, what the Bible says is that what's ultimate is Christ. And our relationship with Him for an eternity. This life here is not ultimate. It is but a blip. But a short time in view of eternity. Even as... Even as the blessings are more wonderful in Christ, so too are the consequences apart from Christ. It says, how much more punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God, profaned the blood of the covenant, by which he was sanctified and outraged the spirit of grace? So how, how could they How could they regard as unclean the blood of the covenant, right? How could they... How could they insult the spirit of grace? What is he talking about? He's talking about rejecting the Holy Spirit of God. It's exactly what he's talking about. The blood of the covenant or the blood of Christ is that which truly cleanses. But to turn to turn from that and turn back in their context to these to these animal sacrifices is to deem the blood of Christ as unclean. It's not good enough. It's profane. We'd rather have that than 
have the blood of Christ. What a, what a thing to trample the blood of Jesus. And it's that future is not simply stoning by men, but the punishment would be meted out by God himself. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, he says, the Lord will judge his people. Again, I know, look, we have a guest preacher come in and now he's preaching about judgment and an eternity in hell. What is this? This isn't very Presbyterian, is it? We want to hear about grace and we want to hear about God's goodness. I get it. But this is also the word, isn't it? And, and the good news is good news precisely because of the bad news, right? The good news is good news because, because apart from Christ, we are lost. And our sin has plunged us into an estate of sin and misery apart from him. And it's only by Christ, only by Christ that we are saved. You see, to reject Christ is to sin against God. And that seems obvious, doesn't it? Duh, Chris. That doesn't take much to figure that one out. But to reject Christ is to to spit in the face of God and he will repay. God is a jealous God. He does what he does for his glory. And the text says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So can't you hear the urgency? Can't you hear the plea and the love for the people by this author? And you may be thinking, this doesn't sound loving. Oh, yes, it is. Listen to him. He's pleading with them. Don't turn back. Don't turn away from Christ because he's your only hope. Sometimes we need to be reminded of that, too, don't we? Even as believers, because we're tempted to turn away from Christ and to trust in other things. Day by day by day by day. But hear the, hear the plea. Don't turn away from Christ. He's our only hope. On whom does the wrath of God for sin fall? There's two options. On Christ or on you. On Christ or on me. And our culture today doesn't understand this text. They've attempted to take sin and the punishment thereof out of the context of the gospel. But again, when you do that, there is no gospel. We lose the gospel. You do not want to fall into the hands of the living God. Instead, wouldn't you rather be gathered by the hands of the living God and his son, Jesus Christ? Will you you meet him? Will you meet him as a son in his son? Or will you meet him as one who's trampled the blood of his son? Those are the two alternatives. This is what the author of Hebrews is saying. And the fear of God is a is a great motivator. I know sometimes we don't think about this very often, do we? We we want to use as a motivator the love of God in Christ, and that is a good thing, and we lead with that most of the time. But the fear of God is a great motivator to overcoming sin in your life. Because sin deserves judgment. And here's a warning against sin. You know, up above the author, the author wasn't talking about just any sin here. He was talking about the rejection of Christ But there is here, too, a motivation to keep from sinning because we begin to learn just how serious this is in the sight of God. There was an advertisement for a TV show. I I love, like, um, crime shows on TV, whether it's CSI, Law & Order, those types of things. And and this has been a long time ago, but there was a commercial, and I remember it, uh, because it it was so profound. Um, Not... 
let me just tell you what it was. So as they were, they showed the little snippet of the episode coming up. And the main character is talking about something that happened in the case that they were working on. And the main character says, this isn't just murder anymore. And listen to what he says. He says, it's now personal. I want you to think about that for just a moment. What's more important to this guy? Murder? That the law of God has been transgressed? That somebody has sinned against God? Nope. It's personal now. He now feels like he's been sinned against. That's our culture, isn't it? And I would argue that it's even crept into the life of the church. It's one thing. It's one thing for a murder to have taken place. It's one thing that the law of God's been broken. But it's quite another thing that I've been transgressed. Because now it's personal. May we see sin as it truly is. First and foremost, it is a transgression against God himself, the sovereign creator of all things. And so when we see the sin for what it is, may it then move us to do something. And what is that? To, to drive us to Christ. To drive us to Christ. I love how every week y'all do the confession of sin and then you turn right at the ground and you do the assurance of pardon. Right? What's put before us? Sin and how we failed. But then what? We're driven to the Lord Jesus. Don't turn away from him. For there is also then a great reward, right? So in verse 32, the author uh, says, But recall former days when after you enlightened, you endured a hard struggle and uh, suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. You fully uh, joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Why and how did they do such a thing? Because you knew. That you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. I think as believers, if this truth would take root in our hearts, it would change the way we live. It would change the way that we love one another. It would change the way that we give to one another. That we have all things in Christ Jesus. And it frees us up to then love well on this earth. Because there is a reward. There is a future. Comparing the past and the present trials with the future doesn't compare. This is similar to looking at our our present trials in the context of the sea of God's mercies. Our present trials in view of God's mercy, they pale in comparison, don't they? Of what we have in Christ Jesus. When we look at that which is to come, the things of today just don't compare. And we don't have to then hold so tightly to the things of this world. We, we won't take that stuff with us. I mean, I know we know that, right? But sometimes we hang on to it as if we, as if we will. We won't need to take it with us. We won't want to take it with us. We won't want to take it with us. For what we look forward to is so much greater than what we endure now. And yet we still chase after the things of this world. Um, I'd said this a couple of weeks ago at, at um, Trinity Grace, and I can't remember. I couldn't remember then. I can't remember now. But it just that a, a preacher once said that that we satisfy ourselves way too easily. 
that, that we would just as soon play in the ghetto in mud pies when what the Lord Jesus offers us is sandcastles by the sea. But we would just stay in the ghetto and play with mud pies because we find that that's good enough for us. Now that was a very rough translation of whoever said that. So if you know who I'm talking about, going, that's not what he said. It was the gist of it. Okay, it was the gist of it. But we, we satisfy ourselves with the things of this world when we have all things in Christ. We learned, we ought to look forward, learn to look forward to the reward that we have in him. So, so what if they take our things here? So what if they take our land here? So what if they take my stuff here? Because really, in Christ I own it all. We own it all in Christ Jesus. And it'll be that way when he returns. This is, the, this is part of that foundation for us being able to give someone our coat when they ask for our shirt. Part of the foundation for us to be able to turn our cheek. We have the freedom to not hang on to the earthly things because we await our reward that so outweighs and outshines all temporal things. And I know we struggle with that though, don't we? We struggle with it. I know I do. I struggle with wanting things here and now. But let's, let's allow the Lord to draw our eyes to the future of what he's got for us there. Let's have an eternal mindset rather than a temporary one. There's another TV show. I don't think it's on anymore. But I think about it often because I know some people like this that struggle with hoarding things. Uh, some of you may struggle with that. But there used to be a TV show about it. Maybe it's still on. I don't know. But one of the people on the show was explaining why he or she did this. And the person said, every item represents a memory, an experience. And it is all that makes up Carrie Lee. But isn't that just it? How, how, how did this woman identify herself? Where was her identity found? And then again, so whether you're one plagued by that or one simply struggles with holding on to earthly things, it's, isn't it about us defining ourselves by those things rather than allowing Christ to define us? And it's sometimes easy to look at, look at those things on the extreme and think, gosh, I can't believe people do that. I can't believe people live this way or that way. And yet, all of us, all of us struggle with that same reality in some way, holding on to things that are simply temporary. Placing our trust and our hope and finding our identity there rather than in Christ and the promises to come. All these temporary things do not compare to the reward and treasure that awaits us in Jesus Christ. The best of today is but a glimpse of the reality of what is to come. And so then the author says, he says, don't, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. You see what he's saying? He's, he's calling us to persevere, right? Don't give up. Don't give in. Stand firm. Keep the faith. Persevere. And that's the encouragement that he leaves us when in, in verses 36 to 39. And notice why the author is giving these stern warnings. And this should be obvious to us, but I think we need to be reminded of this. Um, both for our own encouragement as well as our instruction. That is to say, so that we can be encouraged that God wants... What is best for us while at the same time following the author's example here. 
Look what he says in 36. He says, for you have need of endurance so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. He wants his audience, both the first century Hebrews and you and I, he wants for us to receive the blessing of God. God, God wants us to receive what is promised. And so he's moving us in this direction. We're exhorted in the scripture because it is what's good for us. We have a father in heaven who loves us dearly. And there's blessing in it. Hear it. Heed it. Because in the end, there's blessing. This is a positive discipline, isn't it? Yes, it may be a tough passage, but it's a positive discipline. Why does God give us these stern warnings? Because he loves us. I mean, that may seem simple. And it is. It's simple and yet it's profound. And it's true. Because he loves his people. A son disciplined is a son loved. The author of Hebrews knew the question would be asked, actually. In fact, he anticipates it. We're not there yet. You'll get to it in a couple of weeks when you come to chapter 12. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. He goes on to say, look, if, you are, if, if you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So... Here's the encouragement. Hear the word of the Lord. Heed the word of the Lord. Receive the word of the Lord and don't turn away from the word of the Lord. Why? Well, he, he goes on. But yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay because the Lord is coming and judgment's coming. You see, again, why are we not to forsake meeting together and encouraging one another? Because Christ, Christ is coming again. This is not all there is. Christ is coming again. And God make, God takes no pleasure in the one who turns away. The one who shrinks back. He takes no pleasure in the one who, who, heard the, who has heard the truth and then falls away from it. He takes no pleasure in the one who does not hold to the truth of Jesus Christ. But look at what he says of those who walk by faith. But we are not of those who shrink back. We are not of those who are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere their souls those in Christ, by faith, are the righteous ones. We're not righteous because we've done it. We're not righteous because we have performed in such a way that have made ourselves righteous. No, we are, we are righteous only in and because of Christ Jesus. But in Him, we are the righteous ones. What a wonderful, wonderful truth. And even picture that God looks at you as righteous in His Son. No matter where you come from, no matter how. I had a young man this morning who visited our church and afterward he said, hey, can we stop and visit? And I said, sure. And he said, he said, I, I know all the right answers. He said, I know all the right answers and I want to trust the Lord, but I just don't think that he can really forgive me for what I've done. You see, that, that young man's picture of Jesus needs to be expanded, doesn't it? Because the blood of Christ covers our sin and our unrighteousness. And there is no sin so great that his blood doesn't cleanse it. That's the mercy of God in Christ. So the author quotes Habakkuk, doesn't he? The righteous shall live by faith. How do we not shrink back? How do we, how do we hold fast? How do we live in light of the return of Christ? Well, we do so by faith. We hold fast. Those who trust in Christ persevere, even, even as we are preserved by him. We persevere 
even as we're preserved. His argument really is very encouraging. And in fact, we get the whole of it continued down even into chapter 11. Because as you're going to come to next in the weeks to come, look, there's plenty of evidence of those who have lived by faith to a long line of them. Right? That's where, that's where you're going to move into the great hall of faith in chapter 11. But here's, here's the bottom line. It's the same argument that the authors presented from the very beginning of this great book. This great book of Hebrews. And that is this. Jesus is better. He's superior. He's the only one and he's the only way. Don't turn from Christ because apart from him there's no sacrifice for sin. Only Christ. And the alternative to that is the wrath of God. Hang in there. And I don't mean that again. I don't mean that flippantly. I don't mean that by your own strength. But trust in Christ. Rest in Him. Lean in Him. Persevere. Because you're preserved in Christ Jesus. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Look, Christian, to the reward that you have in Him. And look to the promises of God. Let's pray together, shall we?